give the kids a couple minutes to head to their classes and you know we sang a lot of songs about holiness and um, that word holy we don't hardly know what to do with it because we don't completely understand it holiness has to do with something that is perfectly pure and that is unlike anything else A.W. Tozer said we think in shades of gray but God's holiness is is such a pure white that we've never experienced anything like it but one day we will won't we one day we will see him and we'll experience his holiness and its perfection would you pray with me Lord this morning as we um, as we come to this part of the of the morning where we open your word um, God the, there's always the danger that we read the truths of your word that we study the the principles of it and um, but that we re- remain unchanged by it and um, and we're not okay with that Lord we want to be changed um, by you as we open your word Lord you intended for your children to um, to be changed by the truths of your word by the truth of who you are and uh, by your kindness to us and Lord this morning we sang the songs of uh, remembering your holiness and um, God I do look forward to and long for the day where we see you face to face and we see your holiness and all that it is and we experience it for all of eternity and all of its uh, all of its beauty and and, and the, the greatness and the adventure and all of it um, that we will experience it in perfection fully but Lord you you have us here um, and uh, and then you you equip us to live this life and uh, and to do so with uh, with the truth of eternity on our hearts. Keep equipping us this morning. As we open your word, open our hearts as only you can do. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd and I do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. Um, we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And we are taking chapters 26 and 27 this morning. It's a, it's a story of um, some betrayal. It's a story of reminding us of how God sees us, sees our faith as being precious. One of the things that I have always done since I was a kid is collect like little knickknacks that have meaning. And my wife and I are wired very differently that way. I collect them, she throws them away. And um, she finds meaning and purpose in removing them. I find meaning and purpose in hanging on to them. And I was in a setting here, here recently where somebody asked, like, what's the one thing that you have that you absolutely don't ever want to lose or throw away? You know, what's precious to you? And um, I had a long list of things. And I realized that at any given point, I could name, you know, half a dozen things, some of them still from my childhood. I have, I have a quarter that I swallowed when I was about 10 years old. And for the sake of not being gross, I'm not going to explain how I acquired that quarter. <laughs> but I still have it. And it's, it has meaning. I mean, it was a part of me for about seven years. And uh, so I'm not getting rid of that quarter. Even if I'm down to my last quarter and I need a bottle of pop, by then it'll be, you know, five bucks for a pop anyway. Um, I'm not getting rid of that quarter. But there's something about 
the stuff that has meaning and is precious to us. We use that term for something that is different than just our ordinary possessions. You know, the stuff that we own, we own a lot of stuff that's not really that precious to us. But then there is the stuff that has meaning and purpose and is precious to us. And then when we get into the text this morning, after a little bit, we're going to see David using that word and even referring that word to the way he saw King Saul, even though Saul was attempting to take his life. But then even more importantly, David using that word in reference to how God sees him and hopefully making the connection in how God sees us. If I could quickly do an outline of the chapters 26 and 27. 26 verses 1 to 5 start with this story of the Ziphites. And I don't know anything about the Ziphites. There's actually very little said about them. But they come up twice in 1 Samuel. They come up, this is the second time, by the way, that the Ziphites came to Saul and said, David is down there in our area and you could come down there and find him. And if you know the story, you know that Saul, of course, is on the hunt for David. He's trying to kill David because he's just consumed by jealousy. And, and, um, and he's so afraid that people are going to start following David instead of him. Saul is a deeply insecure man. And, and he's, uh, he's been described before, and I think accurately, as a madman. Like he's, he's lost his ability to even reason logically. He's so full of hatred and bitterness that he's lost his ability to reason and make rational decisions and use any decent logic whatsoever. And so Saul's the madman and he's chasing David and David keeps kind of bouncing around the country and fleeing Saul. But this is the second time where this group of people that we know of as the Ziphites, and they were Israelites, um, they were the tribe of Benjamin, and so some people think that there was probably some kind of, of feeling or sense of connection to King Saul because he was also uh, the tribe of Benjamin. I don't know, but they felt some sense of loyalty to Saul, and they betrayed David twice. In chapter 26, verses 1 to 5, you see them betraying David, and they go to Saul, and they're saying, David is down here, right there in our area, and David does the counterintuitive thing, and he moves towards Saul and not away from him. So he's spent the last you know, months, probably a little over a year by now, running away from Saul, but this time you read something that almost seems odd. It's counterintuitive because as the Ziphites go to betray him, somebody also comes to David and says, Saul is coming down, and David, instead of running away from him, runs toward him, and he heads toward Saul. And they meet up in the mountains. Now Saul doesn't know that David's coming his way and Saul doesn't know that David's anywhere around. But there's a point where Saul and his men stop and they rest. And you find that story uh, told in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 26 where David sneaks into the camp while Saul and all of his men are fast asleep. And David and two of his men sneak in there and they have the perfect opportunity for the second time actually to take Saul's life. And David's men that are with him are like, oh my goodness, the Lord has given Saul into your hand. There's a sword right there by his head. And one of David's men even says, I'll even do it for you. I'll pick up the sword. And, and he's very specific, by the way, which is a little disturbing as to where his mind was at. Because he's like, I'm, I, I can take his head off and make no noise. 
And, you know, at some point, David should have looked at him and said, you're a sick dude (laughs) that you are thinking like that. But David just says, no. He says, listen, he says, this guy, Saul, is king because God placed him there, and he is God's anointed to be king of Israel. And he says, how would I presume to take his head off? He said, I won't do it. So he took uh, Saul's sword, he took his water uh, bottle, and he... And it says, the Lord made a deep sleep fall on all of them, which is interesting because the narrator is very specific again with that and saying, if you think they were just sleeping like you would normally sleep at night, the narrator say, no, God caused a deep sleep to fall on them. And they snuck out of the camp with Saul's sword and water bottle in hand, went over to, went kind of down a valley and up the other side, and then started to wake up. Saul and his men by yelling at them, and, uh, and, and David kind of goes after Saul's bodyguard, Abner, and he, he really, you know, he says, what's wrong with you? You didn't protect the king. I could have taken his head off. And so David confronts Saul in chapters 13 through 25, pleads his case, and this is the last recorded conversation that David and Saul ever have. Saul, by the way, is his father-in-law, or he was his father-in-law. If you remember in the last chapter, Um, One of the last things it says is that Saul had given his daughter Michael to be married to somebody else because when David had to flee for his life, he left Michael behind and and Saul um, found somebody else and married her off to him. And Michael, by the way, is not going to disappear. When we get into 2 Samuel, we're going to find her re-entering the scene of the story again. But this is his father-in-law. It's his king. He once played for Saul with his harp to settle Saul down. He has delivered Saul from the Philistines. I mean, they've had an interesting and a very mixed relationship. But this is the last conversation that's recorded in Scripture that is between David and Saul in chapter 26. And we're going to read that here in just a little bit. But David confronts him. He pleads his case. And Saul realizes that David could have killed him. Chapter 27, um, it's only 12 verses long, but chapter 27 is an interesting story because it shows David going to the place that he should have never gone, where where it's his enemies. It seems to be, again, very counterintuitive that he would go to the Philistines because they're the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, but he goes to them for safety. And the Philistine king actually allows him to be there, moves him to another part of the country, and, and actually gives him a town. And it was a town, by the way, that God, uh, it was in the region that God had promised to the Israelites when they came into the promised land. So it should have rightfully been theirs anyway. And David does a fascinating thing. He starts going to war against the areas to the south of that. I'm going to pop up a map here. He goes to the south of that, and he starts to go down in here and make war against these tribes. And while he does it, he he just absolutely obliterates the tribes. And he doesn't leave anybody alive to come back and tell the story that David had come in there. And when he comes back, he comes back to the king of uh, the Philistines, and he brings the spoils of war back. And the king of the Philistines says, where'd you get him? He says, I was over here fighting against the Israelites. And he wasn't over there at all. He was down there defeating the enemies of God. And you might say, well, I don't like the fact that David lied about that. Take it up with David. 
But what's kind of cool about that is that those tribes that he was fighting down in here were tribes that God had specifically mentioned as the children of Israel came into the promised land in Deuteronomy. And he said, I will give you those tribes and give you that land. And he said, and I'll even drive them out before you. In other words, I'll give you the victory against your enemies. And for whatever reason, the children of Israel had not finished the task of conquering the promised land that God had given them. And they had developed enough space for themselves and and settled in comfortably. Maybe they were tired of fighting. I don't know what all the reasons are. Scripture doesn't necessarily give us a reason, but it certainly allows us to, to discern that they had not finished the task that God had set in front of them. And how many of you know that there's times when you do get weary of the battle and it's easy to just quit and to say, I'm just done. I'm just done fighting. I'm done fighting my own sin. I'm done fighting my own sinful tendencies. The stuff that I've been fighting for 20 years, I'm just tired of it. And maybe that's what happened with the children of Israel. I don't know. But David based on the promise of God's word, by the way. This is not David just making it up as he's going. Based on the promise of God's word, he goes down in here during that time and he reclaims, or not reclaims, he claims that land for Israel. And he defeats enemies that God had said he would defeat. So I want to get into the text. Let's pick it up in verse 17. If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to go there. And I'm going to Um, I have it all on the screen also. We're going to read from verse 17 of chapter 26 to the end. And we're kind of breaking into this scene where David has taken Saul's sword and his water bottle, and he's gone, and and now he's hollering back across the canyon, and he's yelling at at Abner, and he's saying, saying, why didn't you protect your king? And... And he says, go look. He says, do you see the spear and the jar of water at the king's head? No, they're not there. He said, I have them. And then we pick it up in verse 17, and it says, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord pursue after his servant? And by the way, when he's saying my lord, capital or small l, um, lowercase l, he's referring to Saul. It's It's a term of honor where it's uppercase L, he's referring to God. So David says, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he says, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. 
For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may your life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver you out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. You see Saul saying, David, I'm, I'm wrong, I sinned. I've, I've been pursuing you unjustly. Like he acknowledges it. He knows he's doing wrong. And he even invites David to come over there and join him. And David's smart. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that just because somebody says they were wrong doesn't necessarily mean they've had a change of heart. And one of the things that you, know, you figure out through life is that when trust has been violated, trust is not regained by words. It's regained by time and actions. So if somebody's violated your trust or you violated somebody else's trust, I remember a number of years ago, I was teaching a, a Bible study in, at Oakdale Prison up in North Liberty. And I'd go in there once a week. And, and, um, and one of the questions that, that would come re- regularly from men who had deeply disappointed their wives, who had violated their trust, was how do I get my wife to trust me again? And, and I started telling him, well, what you don't do is earn her trust with your words. You earn it with your actions. And David's smart enough to know that, that words alone do not reclaim trust. Because a lot of words can be said, but in order for trust to be regained, there has to be time and action in order to reestablish trust. It doesn't just come. So David is smart. When Saul says, hey, I feel really bad about what I've been doing. I've sinned against you. I was doing the wrong thing. And I think you should just come over and join me. And let's all go back together to Gibeah where he probably was at at that point. And David says, David doesn't say, oh no, I don't trust you. David very tactfully says, tell you what, why don't you send a guy over here? I'll give you your sword and your water bottle back, and you go your way, and I'll go my way. And, um, and David is just so respectful and so tactful with the way that he handles that. And then he does. And like we saw a little bit ago in chapter 27, the next thing that he does then is he does go down to the Philistines. Chapter 27 begins where it says, David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And... I'm actually glad that's there because David knew that God, had, that God was protecting him, didn't he? I mean, had not God done enough for David to say, I know God's protecting me. But David's also very human. And he also is saying, I could die out here if I make one misstep. And one of the things that's sort of fascinating to me as we've gone through 1 Samuel is you sort of see the wrestling in David that shows his humanity and I'm glad it does because that's most of us too there's times where man faith is strong and you're like I know God is taking care of me and I my faith is really strong right now and then you know something happens you think ah this is gonna be a complete failure I'm a failure my life's gonna be a failure nobody likes me you know on and on and I don't know that David was quite in that bad of shape but he's also wrestling with 
the, the reality of what was ahead of him. The reality was that he was in a very, very dangerous situation where King Saul was trying to kill him, and it seemed as though there were plenty of people around him who were willing to turn him in and betray him. It's a tough spot to be in. So David goes down to the Philistines. And I kind of want to sit David down at that moment and say, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. God's not going to let you go. Because God sees you as precious. But David wasn't completely sure. It's what he wanted, but he wasn't sure. But what are we to make of some of these stories? And how do you explain David going and fighting against those tribes that I talked about a little bit ago. So he engages in that battle and he refuses to engage in the battle that was actually right in front of him. So he was battling an an entire army of men, roughly 3,000, led by Saul, coming up against him. They had picked the fight. And if you... If you've ever had somebody pick a fight with you, you know what the right thing is to do, right? Fight back. David didn't. But then he goes down to that other area, and he goes and picks a fight with the, with the other tribes. And he engages in that battle while he's refusing to engage in the other. And I think one of the lessons that we need to learn is fight the right battles, Because that's an issue for all of us. There's a tendency at any given point to fight the situations of our lives and ignore the heart conditions that exist in our our lives. In other words, we will fight the people that we don't like, but we won't fight our own sin. And the Bible at no point makes a promise That when God is on your side, that all the situations of your life are just going to work out. That people are all going to like you. That people will understand you. That you'll experience justice. That your path, your journey through earth will just be one of prosperity and health and wealth. And the Bible never makes that promise. What it does promise is that because the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross because he died for our sins, that we can confess our sins, repent of them, and we can actually find freedom from the sin that is internal that allows us to cope with what is external. Let me say that again. We can find the freedom from the sin that is internal that allows us to cope with what is external. And at no point does the promise ever come that what is external is going to magically change. The promise is that because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of our sins, because he rose again the third day to give us a new life, and he gives us his Holy Spirit, and we are justified, we are completely forgiven and justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. We are in the process of being sanctified also because of what he did on the cross. We have been set free from sin's penalty, but we are constantly being set free from sin's power. 
And of course, one day we'll be set free from sin's presence. But we are in that season right now where it's easy to get distracted and somebody insults us. Somebody does something we don't like. And we're like, ha, you pick a fight with me. You'll pay. You can't pick a fight with me and win. And we sort of get this sort of um, macho attitude like, I will not be picked on. I will not be defeated. And then we wonder sometimes why it seems like everything just sort of falls apart in our lives. Well, maybe we're fighting the wrong battles. And David had so much wisdom and so much understanding. He knew that the battle that Saul was picking with him was not one that God had asked him to fight. And then he literally, based on the truth of what God had already said, the truth of God's word, he's like, I already know with a confidence. I don't, I don't think that David was visited by an angel or had some kind of a special revelation. I think he just looked at what God had said. Those tribes are part of your inheritance. They're part of the promised land. Go get it. I'll let you do it. And he just went and did it. And we have promises that, I mean, over and over and over, and the entire book of Romans is written to assure us that we can be free from sin's power. And yet, it's easier to engage in the battles that are external and ignore the ones that are internal. Secondly, fight the right way. I love the fact that David, in his conversation with Saul, he acknowledges, he doesn't use the word covenant, but he describes the covenant because he talks about how he is a part of God's inheritance. And, and, he, and he, he says, um, he talks about, if, if men have stirred you up against me, he's talking to Saul, he's like, if this is something that is the work of men, and he says, I would prefer that they would be cursed because they are trying to remove me from the heritage of the Lord, verse 20, uh, verse 19, I'm sorry. He says, that, he says, they're trying to say that I would have no share in the heritage of the Lord. And they are saying, these were men who were saying to David, go serve other gods. And David says, no way. I don't want that to happen. He said, I don't want my blood to fall anywhere away from the presence of God. And David understood the covenant relationship that he was in with Jehovah God. As a child of Israel, he was in a covenant relationship with God. And you and I are actually also in a covenant relationship with God. Again, Hebrews just describes it beautifully, that we have been invited into and entered into a new covenant with Christ. Because of what Christ has done, you and I enjoy a covenant relationship with God. That means that God has actually attached himself to his church, that he has entered into an agreement with us. Now that may or may not mean anything to you, but it should. And if you want to look around for some kind of help, marriage is probably the closest thing you can look to. That we enter into a covenant relationship where it's more than contractual. Oh, there's a contractual, there's a legal aspect of it, but there is also a relational aspect of it. It's much more than legal. It's more than relationship. You're not just friends with, you know, or you're just 
together. Like there's a legal component to it, but then there's also a relational component to it. And there is a trust component to it. That's what covenants are. David understood that he was in a covenant relationship, and you and I should too. And if we will fight our battles the right way, it will be based on the premise and the truth that God loves me, that he has accepted me, and that I am one of his, and I am in a covenant relationship with him. If you are here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you've never trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, and to cleanse you, and to change you from the inside out, then you're not in a covenant relationship with Jesus. I don't want to be, I don't want to be abrasive or harsh, it, but that's the reality of it. If your faith is not in Jesus, if it's in yourself, then you're not in a covenant relationship with Jesus. So the, it's very simple that any of us, John 3, 16, you know, whosoever would trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, for the forgiveness of the fact that we are sinners and that he would cleanse us and that he will make us different people, he will transform us. And that is the beginning of a covenant relationship with God. And navigating the difficulties and the battles of our lives outside of the context of that covenant is just a shot in the dark. We're left to our best devices. We're left to our own human effort and just the best that we have. And it's never good enough. It never is good enough. Thirdly, fight with confidence. David had a sense of confidence when they tell him the Ziphites have betrayed you and then Saul is coming down. David turns and he goes right back towards Saul. And you see a sense of courage in what he does and a confidence. And I think he kind of tells us where his confidence came from in that conversation with Saul where he says, he says as, in verse 24, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulations. And David in that moment is reminding himself, God is looking on this situation. And he reminds Saul that God rewards righteousness and faithfulness. Now, again, with so much tact, because what he could have said, and he'd have been justified in saying this, was he could have said, Saul, you have been the opposite of righteous and faithful. And if you want to know why you're a crazy person, it's because you aren't righteous and you're not faithful. And instead he just says, remember, God rewards the righteous and the faithful. And then he says, and as your life was precious in my sight, I believe that God's going to see my life as being precious in his sight. And the courage for David was that he knew that there was an almighty, all-knowing, all-wise God who saw him as something that was precious and worth hanging on to, something that is unique. Like I talked about those keepsakes, this is even at a greater level where David's life was precious in the hands of God and therefore he knew that he was in the safest place possible because he was in the hand of God. And that again, true for you and I, there is no safer place than being held in God's hands. There is no place where sin 
Satan and the world cannot defeat us except in the presence of God, except held in the security of a God who considers our life precious. And then you may be sitting here this morning, and this is not unusual, and saying, I hope it's true for you. However, I got a lot of things going on in my life that are painful. I have things that I don't understand why they came into my life. Relationships that are tough, health issues, whatever it is, disappointments, financial struggles. And I'm not sure that God sees my life as precious because I'm going through some stuff. And when you are in the middle of going through things, it feels in that moment as though God sort of has checked out on you. And maybe he doesn't like me very much. Like, well, I go and went to Sunday school and I sang, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And, and I know in my head that Jesus loves me. I'm not sure he likes me. Because bad stuff just keeps happening to me. There's a passage in 1 Peter that I think about a lot in times of difficulty and testing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7 Peter, of course, is writing to Christians who are going through difficult times and they're struggling. And he says, in this you rejoice. And he's talking about the gospel. He had just explained the gospel to them. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, as though, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I know you're going through some stuff. And I know you're going through a difficult time. But he says, can I give you a different perspective on it than what you have? Because your perspective is, it stinks right now. I don't like my life right now. I don't like some of the things in my life. And so something went wrong. And Peter's saying, no, everything is right. It didn't go wrong, it's right. And it is actually something that is really precious in the sight of God. Because he said, your faith is being tested by fire. And, and he kind of gives this, uh, almost this picture, if you will, of God holding your faith or my faith and sort of gently laying it into a refiner's fire. And he knows that, yeah, the fire is going to get hot, and I don't like this in the moment. However, it's burning out things that need to be burned out. It's burning the impurities out. And I am in the fire because my faith is precious to God. Not instead of, but because of. Because you are precious in the sight of God, because your life is precious in God's sight, and your faith is precious, God allows those trials and those struggles to happen in our lives, and it burns the stuff out of us that shouldn't be there anyway. And it's not his disfavor, it is his favor that allows it. It is his mercy that allows these things. Because he's cleansing us and he's changing us from the inside out. He's making us different people. And in the process, he's taking our faith that he says, Peter says, is precious to him. And he's changing us day by day, little by little. And we can fight the fire and see it as God's disfavor, but it wouldn't be consistent with what Scripture teaches us. God's Word teaches us 
very clearly, when you're feeling the fire, you probably should start rejoicing. And, I mean, I'm not talking about some Pollyannish, you know, though everything is awesome, I won't acknowledge that this is difficult. No. But, th- but something that runs deeper than the struggle that says, I know God's up to something here. I know that I'm still precious in his sight. I know that my faith is precious based on the truth of his word. And whether you or I feel it at the time doesn't actually make it true or false. Our feelings don't determine the truth. God's word does. So when God says your faith is precious even though you're going through a trial, what does it look like? What, What would it look like for my faith to be precious? Well, can I ask the question, do you take the situations of your life and turn to God with them? That's literally what faith tells us to do. Because something happens and we tend to look at that thing. Somebody said something, I'm, I'm short on money, I'm long on bills, short on money, or whatever. And we're like, here's what needs to happen. I know what needs to happen. And we start to develop a plan. And we start to devise what we're going to do. And we don't need God at all because we're so smart. And we know how to win this battle. And then find ourselves repeating the battle over and over. And instead of turning to God, we turn to our own wisdom. Faith is when we stop and we turn to God with the situations of our lives. Go read Hebrews chapter 11. You know, person after person after person of faith. What, what made them unique? was that they just trusted God with what was going on in their lives. When something happened, they'd turn to God. If you're a student and you've got a big test coming, by all means study, but don't study without prayer. You know, if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out what to do with all these, you know, runny noses and cantankerous kids or whatever, and then they get older and and uh, it, it doesn't get better, I promise. <clears throat> read parenting books. But don't read parenting books without turning to God. Don't do it without faith. Your friendships, your job, your finances, all of those areas of your life, by all means, read the books Get advice, but don't do any of it without turning to God. Don't do any of it without faith. Because it's in the turning. It's that time where, we're, where we just develop the rhythm of our life, that the situations of our life are taken to God. Lord, here's what's happening today. I need help with this. Fill in, fill in the blank. And it's in the process of that. The circumstances may or may not change, but I'll tell you what will change. We will change. We get changed in the process because our faith is precious to God. Young mother, you can turn to God because your faith is precious in his sight. Student, you can turn to God because your faith is precious in his sight. Whatever place in life you are, you can turn to God because your faith is precious in his sight. My sermon in a sentence this morning, whatever battle we face, 
we can turn to God knowing that our faith is precious in his sight and he will help us. Hey, David knew it. And our life is going to change if we know it at a heart level. I think that you can predict with quite a bit of accuracy the trajectory of any person's life based on what they do in times of trouble. If in times of trouble we, we move to methods, money, whatever, and we don't train our hearts to turn to God, I can predict with pretty good accuracy what the trajectory of the life will be. Oh, you might be successful financially, but you won't be successful in God's eyes. Because without faith, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, it is impossible to please God. And all of the things that we do, the Christian service, we go to church, try to look nice, we try to be nice, do good things, be generous. And in all of those things that we do, attempting to please God, God says, well, but without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. Impossible, it says. Not difficult, impossible. And that God is pleased by our faith, and it is precious in his sight. So whatever's going on in your life, turn to him. Psalm 54 was written by David in this season of his life. If you go to Psalm 54, it's another one of those psalms that it tells us what was going on in his life at the heading. Psalm 54 says this, this is a song of David when the Ziphites betrayed him before Saul. So now we know. And he writes this psalm during that time. And in the middle of the, right, it's just a short psalm. In the middle of it, he just says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Can you say this morning, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life? Yeah, you can say it verbally, but do you know it in your heart that God is your helper and that he is the upholder of your life? Worship team, go ahead and come. I want to bring this to a close. We've got a few deeper study questions for you if you want to go there. Um, and uh, studies to sort of, you know, get this in a little deeper and into your own heart and your own life. Um, I love... It's in closing. I love the story. I, I have a book at home in my library, and I know I've referred to this before. It's by John Piper, and it's called The Hidden Smile of God. And it's three stories of people who went through very difficult things. And um, you know, the story of, of William Cooper and John Bunyan and David Brainerd, and I highly recommend the book. The story of William Cooper, I, I return to this, and I know I've used this in illustrations different times, but I just keep coming back to that. William Cooper was a, was a guy who... Um, battled depression all of his life. He didn't have any faith in Jesus. He, he didn't, uh, didn't believe in Jesus. Um, he was sort of religious, and, um, but he was, he was so depressed, uh, battled um, te suicidal tendencies and a lot of depression. And, and, uh, and somebody shared the good news of the gospel with him, and, and he gave his life to Jesus and, and, um, and found faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, it seems like the right thing would be that we would just say, well, then William Cooper's life changed dramatically and he never battled depression after that. He actually battled depression the rest of his life. And, um, but he battled it differently. He eventually ended up in, in a church uh, where John Newton, of all people, was the pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, by the way. Um, and William Cooper was there. And William would write songs in the dark days. And, and as he would, he would battle depression his pastor, John Newton, would say, William, keep writing the songs. 
keep writing the songs, and he wrote hymns. And one of my favorites that he wrote was this, this old hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And if you, you know, if you grew up in a church where you sang a lot of hymns, you're familiar with that song, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. But there's a line in that song that always sort of grabs me because it's a curious line, but it says so much. He says, behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, and what he was referring to was the situations that God allows into your life. And it seems as though God is frowning. And he says, you may, it, this is what I, I understand that to be saying, you may think that God is frowning, but behind that there's a smiling face. And it's not a face that is taking pleasure in our struggle, it's a face that sees our faith as precious. That sees your faith and my faith as being something that is precious and he smiles on it and he loves it. And if you're here this morning, you think the providence of God or the plan of God is not a good one because it's difficult. You need to know that behind the frowning providence of God, he hides a smiling face and he sees your faith as something that is precious to him. And regardless of what fire you are in, that your faith is precious in his sight and he holds you and he'll carry you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for just the, the good news, um, not only of the gospel that we are in a covenant relationship, but that because of that relationship that we can trust you with our lives. And God, that whatever is happening in our lives, that like David, we can say that, that our life is precious in your sight, that we're carried by you. God, I pray for each person here this morning. Uh, or in whatever situation they find themselves in, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that, that you would give us the, the confidence and the faith to turn to you with those situations. God, we don't want to live our lives outside of the context of a walk of faith and deep trust in you. Lord, you've been so faithful over the years, generation after generation. How could we not respond with trust and with confidence in you? So Lord, Help each one of us to make the practical applications of these truths, apply them to our hearts as only you can. And I thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.